0: And hey, we're in a series called Why the Cross and we're taking four weeks to look explicitly at the cross of Jesus Christ And each week as we begin the sermon, um, I'm going to read um, the, the gospel account uh, from each of the four gospels um, As it corresponds to the week that we're in on the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ This week we're in Mark chapter 15 beginning in verse 21 This is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and it'll be on the screen for you as well And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, which is the cross of Jesus. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him... And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." So also the chief priest with the scribes, they mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. For the next couple Sundays and the few Sundays leading up to Holy Week, we're going to be examining the cross of Christ And why this symbol and why this event in human history is perhaps the most significant event that has ever happened in um, the world. And we're going to be looking at why it is so important, why this symbol is so important for our own Lives. Let me mention one thing briefly. Um, last Sunday, I mentioned these. This is a free devotional that we're offering. If you're in person today in the lobby, there's um, I think there's still a few that are left, but you can grab one of these for free on your way out. It's called New Life Rising. It's a devotional that's written specifically in the season of Lent, leading up to uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and it's a devotional. I've already been through um, a couple, or the first first few of them as I'm working through this. Incredible resources, uh, resource uh, presented by Christianity Today, a number of different authors um, will bless you. Use it for um, use it for your individual um, devotional work or discipleship group or, or whatever um, have you. Today, the title is this. Last week was Jesus is my propitiation. Today is this. Jesus is my justification. Jesus is my justification. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today and looking at uh, a one set of a series of scriptures that helps us understand this idea of justification. Let me begin. With this question, how does a person know they are right with God? How how does a person know this is the age old question, this is the question for centuries and for millennia. How does a person know that they are right with God when you, at the end of your life, at the end of your days, when your final breath is taken, how do you know that after that very moment you will be standing in a position of rightness or being okay with? God, how does does one know? It, It is one of the greatest questions, the most significant of questions in our entire lives. And Paul is helping his readers, and he's going to help us understand today how it is that one person, any person, can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are in right relationship with God, a big fancy word that the scriptures use, which is justification. Now, here's the problem. Uh, many people in our culture and many people in Paul's culture as well would use a variety of different things to um, try to guarantee or to secure the idea that they were actually right with God. Most people in our culture, if you're walking downtown today, grabbing a, uh, grab, grabbing a bite, um, whatever, um, at a festival, having, you bring up a conversation with, with somebody, you inter- interview people, which this would be weird, but if you interviewed them and said, hey, how do you know... Um, if you're right with God. Well, most people are going to uh, say back to you, well, well, you know, I mean, well, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I mean I'm not, you know, I'm not like super bad or anything. I, mean, I don't know, I'm not perfect, but like, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, th- I think me and God, I think me and God are, I think we are... Good. Um, In in a similar fashion, in in Paul's day, um, many of his readers, these Jewish Christians, they would think, well, it's because of my religious background. Well, it's because of my ethnicity. It's because of whatever it is. And a lot of times, there was a huge tendency for um, these believers to tie their righteousness or their justification to this thing called the law, which was basically the constitution for God's people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And just by the sheer fact that they were recipients of that, law, they equated their own justification to the ability that they were, or not their ability, but just the reality that they were actually adherents or recipients of the law. The problem was that they were using, they had the right information, but they had the wrong interpretation of the way that they should think and understand this thing called the law. And so in order for Paul to help them understand um, what this means, this justification, this being right with God, he would go all the way back to the patriarch of the nation of Israel, the father of God's people, Abraham. Remember, we see in Scripture that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul would go all the way back to the very beginning, to this patriarch in Abraham, and use him as the case test, as the example for how one is justified, how one is in right relationship with God. He would say this, if you you look in Romans chapter 4, and then verse 3, Paul would say, he quotes the Scriptures, for what does the Scripture say? He quotes, "'Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness.'" Essentially what Paul is saying is that Abraham, in the face of a lot of circumstances, in the the face of circumstances that were not formidable for his life, not good circumstances, Abraham, in spite of those circumstances, believed God. He trusted in God. He aligned himself to what God had said. He believed God. And that personal decision became a generational decision, became a geographical decision, became a legacy decision. And that decision to follow God and to believe God in that moment that was counted to him as righteousness or justification. And Paul uses a word here that when Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the word counted, it means to, it means to be credited. It, it kind of has like an accounting language to it. It means that whenever you get paid, assuming you get paid and you get your income, your employer credits funds to your account either through uh, ACH, a direct transfer, direct deposit, or through a check or through uh, cash if you're under the table, kind of like that, Um, your employer credits those funds to your account. And in the same way, the way that God credits this righteousness to Abraham was through Abraham's faith through um, believing. It's an accounting term. Then he says this, if you fast forward into chapter four a little bit later, Paul says this for us in Romans four, verse 23, he says, but the words, it was counted to him, speaking of Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours, ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul, rather, in the most simple sense possible, he's saying, this is how it works for you too. This is how righteousness or justification or being made right with God, this is the same way that it applies to you as it applied to Abraham, is that through faith and through believing God credits or he accounts righteousness to your own life. And here we see this word at the end of verse 25, that Jesus was raised for our justification. This word that we're using for our title today is that Jesus is our justification Jesus is our justification, not my grandma, not growing up in church, not being a pretty good person, not voting Republican, not voting Democrat, not recycling, not whatever, but Jesus is my justification. The word here for justification is actually a legal term. It would be used in the court of law. There would be a judge, there would be a defendant, there would be a prosecutor. And then the judge would have to issue a verdict. And if someone was declared innocent, then they were justified and they were declared innocent uh, in response to the claims or the crimes that were, were given. And Paul uses this word in a spiritual sense for the courtroom of the divine in God's courtroom, and how you can be declared innocent and just as well. Paul would say this in Colossians 2, verse 13. He would say, And you who were dead, meaning spiritually dead, in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. God quickened is what the old King James says. God made alive together. It has this idea of breathing life into something. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses and this is how he did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with it see that word legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross Essentially what Paul is saying, the way that God can declare you righteous in Jesus Christ is because of your sin and your shame and your mishaps and your failures and your brokenness and your issues and all your junk. Uh, Look at your neighbor and say, you're a hot mess. (laughs) Your junk, your issues, your mess, your brokenness, your shame, we all got it. We all got it, all that stuff, all that baggage, all that past, all that stuff that you could not actually meet the moral requirements of the law. Jesus on the cross took it on himself, and through a metaphor, that record of your wrongs was nailed to the cross. Amen. It was nailed to the cross. And everything that stood against you and God, and all of your sin and all of your shame. On the cross, when Jesus took the nails for you, he was, taking, he was taking the legal aspects of your sin and your shame that you did not meet before God. Sin, Christian word, Bible word, sin is ultimately breaking God's law. Whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is God's law, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, anything that is off that or against that or different than that, the scriptures would call that, a sin. It's the breaking of God's law. See, the issue isn't whether or not you are like a bad person or how bad of a person you are. Most of us think, well, I'm not as bad as some other people, so I'm better and I'm fine. The issue isn't where you think you compare or where you think you rank according to others and other people's sins or issues. The issue is that even if no one else existed because of your own sin, you would be a lawbreaker. You would be a law, That doesn't matter, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, it doesn't matter, uh, Hitler or Stalin or anybody else. You in your own life, you are a breaker of God's law. And there is a way to be justified before God. And this word justification is actually mentioned over 200 times in the New Testament. And justification means to declare, to issue a verdict that someone is innocent or justified. It is an acquittal. Of the, the, the crimes that are being alleged or the allegations that are being made against someone. Christ's sacrifice in our place was a guilty sentence we were destined to endure. But here's the problem God cannot just snap his fingers and acquit the guilty. We see this in Exodus 23. We see this in Proverbs 17. It's actually against the very nature of God not to be just and not to do something about injustice. Because God is holy, because he's righteous, because he's pure, justice must be served. If God merely overlooked sin and evil and injustice, it would render his character unjust, unholy, and unrighteous. That's why Job would say quite famously in Job 9 verse 2, he would say, but how can a man be right before God? Job in his own sense, in his own situation, in his own looking at his own life and looking at everything that he had done and looking at a holy God, he was left with this question, but how could it ever, how could anyone ever be made right with God? This dilemma of your sin and God's righteousness, your sin and God's justice is only resolved through the doctrine of justification. That guilty sinners can be declared righteous before God by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And in justification... We are not only acquitted of guilt, we are declared righteous. We're not only forgiven, but we are made righteous before God. We receive the righteousness of God. And so Paul would say this in in, in chapter 5, Romans 5, verse 1. I'm going to walk through a few of these verses, and I'm going to make three applications and three points for us. Here's here's verse 1. He says, Therefore, If you study the book of Romans, there's several key therefores that define the entire book. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, it happens through faith, that's the way that it works, we have peace with God. This is not the peace of God, this is actually peace with God. Which means before Christ, we were not in peace with God, but through justification, we now receive peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. If you go back to chapter 3, remember I quoted last Sunday, it said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem is that you fall short of the glory of God. And here in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that we're given, to it, we're given uh, it by Christ. Look in verse 6. He says this as well. For while we were still weak, while we were still weak, in, in my Bible, um, I've told you before that um, I, I'm a marker. I like to mark up. I like to write in, in, in my Bible in the hard copy. There's four words that I've got circled in, in these verses. Right Here's the first one that I've got circled is the word weak. He says, for while we were still weak, and he means in a spiritual state of weakness, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's the second word that I've got circled, ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Verse eight, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, that's the third word I've got circled, Christ died for us verse 9 since therefore we have now been justified by his blood his shed blood on the cross much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of god verse 10 for if while we were still we were enemies that's the fourth word i've got circled enemies we were reconciled to god by death by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled we shall be saved by his life paul in order to not mince words in order to not give you kind of some kind of vague new age spirituality understanding of your condition before god paul gives you four specific words for the way that you should think about your condition and position before god apart from christ the first word that he uses is weak that you're you're existing in a state of spiritual Um, weakness. The second word that he says is ungodly. That means you are not godly. You don't have anything godly about you. The third word is sinners, which means you are ones who break the law. And then number four is the word enemies. They consequentially get worse and worse after the first one, after the second one, the third one. And he's like, and just for the record, you're in a state of enmity or you're an enemy of God. We don't like this. 21st century American culture, we don't like this. How could he dare say that I'm an enemy of God? The reason that we think this and the way, the reason that we feel this is because we don't actually understand sin. We actually don't understand evil and injustice and wickedness and our own brokenness in and of ourselves. And Paul says very clearly that your condition and your state before Christ your condition with God is that you are an enemy against God. Here's the reason: we're sinners by association. I'll read, I'll read a verse for you, Romans 5:18. Paul says that we're sinners by association. Here's what I mean: therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, referring to Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men through Jesus Christ. First of all, that we are sinners by association. Here's what that, this means. Because of our father, our first father, Adam, because of his sin, we are in connection and association with him, and by the very nature of our association, we're sinners as well. And you're like, what? but I didn't do anything, but you know, I, I'm not Adam, I don't have any culpability because of what he did. Uh, yes, you do. Uh, we are all in humanity together, and the way that God views humanity is that we are one, and because of our father Adam's sin, because of what he's done, we are by association, guilty just by association. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Gen X in the Cape Fear River. Um, how many of you installed a, a reverse osmosis filter in your, in your, um, because we apparently have left things in our bodies because of the water that we should. Like, like, did, did I, did I, did I, I don't think anyone in here, but did we, did I, like, start the contamination a few decades ago in the Cape Fear River, you know, through, we won't mention names, you know, because we're nice. Um, but did we, did we, no, none of us, as far as I know, did that. But because of our connection, because of our association, just because of we're here, we're actually um, impacted by another person's um, actions. In a similar way, spiritually, you and I, even just being born into humanity, are born into a broken, sinful state. This is what theologians would call original sin. That you and I aren't born, don't start in a place of innocence, but by our very nature, are, as Ephesians says, children of wrath. That you and I, by our sheer connection to Adam, are guilty by association. You're like, well, I don't like that. Well, you actually should like that. Because if God can associate you with one man, Adam, yes. he can associate, associate you with one man, Christ. Yes. And because of the sin of um, Adam's actions, you're sin- because of the, the, the glory and the sacrifice of Christ's actions, you can be made justified. Yes. You can be uh, forgiven. That, that's how it works, and that is the point. So we're sinners by association, but then we're also sinners by action and activity. We're sinners by the very things that we do, the very thoughts that we have, the very actions that we take. So here's, here's, I'll close with this, Um, three applications, three statements that I think will help us and really um, help us understand the the transformative work of justification in our own lives. Here's number one. Number one is this, justification is not a process, it's a status. It's not a process, it's a status, it's not like we give you 10% justification when you do a good thing, and then 25% justification, and then 75%. Ju- and then hopefully by the end of your life, you'll actually cross the line of justification. That's, that's not how it works. It's not, a, it's not a process. It is a legal status. Either you are justified or you are not. That's, I, I hear, I, hear um, I have conversations with people all the time and talking about spiritual things and whatnot, and, you know. And, and, it, it's, and sometimes um, the, the, the conversation is that, well, I'm just trying to be saved. Or I'm I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just hoping, I'm just hoping that if, if I, if I don't mess it up and if I'm good enough at the end, then, then God will accept me. The problem there is it's a false understanding of justification because justification isn't a process. It's a status. Either you are or you are not. And the question is, have you ever put your faith in Christ? Have you ever truly given your life to God? One of the ways that I like to say it is, have you crossed the line of surrender? Have you crossed the line of surrender? Have you put your faith and your trust in what Christ has done on the cross for you? And if you have, if you have, if you've crossed the line of surrender, if you've you've done that, if if you've made that decision, then you are justified. And the scriptures would say, justification is instantaneous. It is a moment. And a lot of times, understandably, we don't exactly know maybe when we cross that line. But the good question to ask is, do I stand in surrender before God right now? That's the good question to ask. Because sometimes we don't know exactly when that happened in our lives. But justification is momentous. It's instantaneous. Sanctification is the process of growth and spiritual maturity. It's the lifelong pursuit of holiness and living like Christ. So I stand justified, but then I live in sanctification, and then another word, glorification, at the end is when we meet Christ, and he gives us our new bodies. And so as Christians, we, we must rec- recognize that our life isn't the pursuit of justification. Our life after Christ is living out justification through sanctification. These are the big uh, three-cations, if you want to have an idea of how to... justification. Sanctification and glorification And if you invert that order You're actually going to live a life That doesn't have the kind of freedom And deliverance and power That God wants you to have in your life It's, it's, it's not a, a process It is a status It's a legal status So for instance It's, it's like when two people get married Um, I'm doing two wedding ceremonies this weekend, by the way, and I'm officiating two ceremonies. And when I, when does a person get married? Like, but you're like, well, at the wedding. But when does it happen, though? Like, when, when does it happen? Is it like, is it like when, you know, when we read at every wedding, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Love envieth not it, boasteth not it. Uh, is, is that when it happens? Is, is it when they walk down the aisle? Is it when there's the rings? Is it when the little kids with the flowers come down the aisle? Like, at what point is the moment where they're married? Uh, here, 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 here's here's leaf, the government whenever they get the paper. But where, when it happens is when they exchange vows. In that moment, they're vowing. They're committing. It's 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 a decision. It's a confession. This is why Paul would say in Romans chapter ten, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Justification happens when when you in your own life vow before God. You want to use that word. You confess before God. You declare before God. You decide before God. You put your faith in Christ. You submit to him, and, and, and at that moment, you are justified, which, which means God has now given you the spiritual legal status of being justified, and you're like, well, that sounds super easy. Well, here's number two. Faith is simple, but it's not easy. Uh, faith is simple, but it's not easy, and, and here, here's, here's what I mean. I, I'm not so sure that faith is, is easy. I mean, we, we hear, well, well, brother, all you got to do, or sister, all you got to do is you just got to put your faith in God, you know? All you got, all you got to do is pray a prayer. Um, I, I think it's actually a little bit more complicated. Um, it's simple, but I think it's a little more difficult than we understand. The reason is that it's not easy is because faith requires that you acknowledge that you are in need, that you need something outside of yourself for your salvation, That you in your current state are doomed and destined for hell. That you are incapable of saving yourself. It's simple because Christ has done the work for you. The only work you have to do is actually submit and agree that you need God, that you need Christ in your place for your sins. And the reason that it's hard is because the only way you can be saved is to lay down your pride, let go of your personal and moral and spiritual accolades, and throw yourself onto his love and grace and forgiveness. Amen. That's how it happens. This, this is why it's easy, you know, the scriptures say that the faith of a child, like, that, like and Jesus would, would say this often, and he would say, if you would just have the faith of a child, and, and I've always, I've actually always wrestled w- w- with that, you know, because children make decisions at a, at a young age and you're like, I don't know that they completely understand, but is it faith? It feels like, Jesus said, it's, I think it's faith. It feels like faith. I don't know. I don't know their heart, but Jesus said that they could have faith. And, and I wrestle w- with that because even some of us may have even made a decision kind of young, at a younger age. And then we get a little bit older and like, I don't know what I believe. And you're like, I have this crisis, spiritual crisis. It happens to many of us. Um, but the, the reason why the faith of a child is easy is because they haven't already established an identity. They haven't already established spiritual accolades. They haven't already established a reputation in the community. They, they already do, don't have the, the things of life that we use to, 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 to bolster ourselves up as somebody. A child doesn't have to lay any of those things down because the child doesn't have them. Yeah. But you to have faith, it's, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. It's recognizing that I, in and of my own self, with my own actions and morality and mind and intellect and my GPA and my house and my career and all the things that I think make me amazing, wonderful, significant uh, person, I have to lay those things down and accept what Christ has done for me that I cannot save myself and I need something outside of myself to save me. That's why faith is not easy. And when a person crosses the line of surrender, they're saying, I cannot save myself. That's why most people come to faith when they're at the bottom. It's because they've already been stripped of all those things. They've been stripped of their goodness, their, their righteousness, their it's, it's when someone is, is at the very bottom after a, a divorce and their spouse has been cheating on them. It's when they're at the very bottom and addiction basically made them lose everything earthly that they had. It's, it's, it's when the, the, the spouse or the loved one or the, the parent or the, or the child dies in front of their eyes and they are left with nothing they feel. And at that moment, they know that they've got nothing to offer God and they receive his grace. That's how faith happens. It's simple, but it's not easy. And, and then Paul would say this in Romans five eleven. It's the last verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice through whom we have now received reconciliation. And here's 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 kind of um, the way that this should lead you. Paul's line of thought. And Paul's thinking in his, his argument is that if you have experienced justification, and it's a good question to ask if you have or not, but if you've experienced that kind of faith, if you've experienced justification, what that will lead you to is rejoicing. It will lead you to an inner sense of, of joy and, and rejoicing and, and celebration, rejoicing and exulting in the glory of God because he becomes our prize. Here's, here's the last point. Here's the here's third one. Justification liberates us from condemnation. Amen. It liberates us from condemnation. And here's, here's, here's the reality. If you're anything like me, you walk into this room today with things in your past that you wish you had never done. You, you, you walk into this room today with things that you've done and things that others have done against you. Some of you walk into the room with a sense of shame and guilt and condemnation. Some of you, even after crossing the line of, of faith, feel that there isn't, still isn't worthiness, that there still isn't value, that there still isn't significance. And you spend your, your days and your life living in a cave of shame and condemnation. If you understand justification correctly, it frees you from that. It liberates you from condemnation. It sets you free from that because if you're walking in condemnation and and shame and you're you're living in some kind of bondage and slavery to the things that you've done in your past it demonstrates that you're still trying to figure out how to atone for those things but if you understand the atonement of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ shed for you, that on the cross, all your sin was nailed, all of its legal demands nailed to the cross for you, if you recognize that he took all of that for you, it actually liberates you from condemnation. It sets you, it sets you, it sets you free. It sets you free, it, 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 it allows you to, to be a person that walks in freedom not a person in perfection but a person that walks in in freedom and, and joy and then you can like paul rejoice in the glory of god and you can exult in in it if you don't understand justification if you if you don't understand how jesus on the cross secures your justification you will not be able to live the kind of life that god wants you to live you will not be able to walk in freedom. You will not be able to walk in liberation. You will not be able to walk in, in confidence. If you don't under, understand justification, you'll tolerate sin. You'll just tolerate sin. You'll make sin your home. You'll just live in it. You don't under, if you don't understand what Christ has done for you, then you'll just, you'll just tolerate, you'll, you'll, or, you'll, or you'll just walk in condemnation. As we close, I'd like to invite you into the divine courtroom. If you could, in your own mind, just imagine the divine courtroom. The Father is on the throne. You are on the stand. The prosecutor, Satan himself, before God, is accusing you of all the things that you've done. You sit on the stand, recognizing that everything that he is saying about you is actually true. You recognize that everything that the enemy is saying about you in your past and the things that you have done are actually true. And that he's saying, you deserve this. You deserve hell. You deserve punishment. You deserve his crime. He's pleading to the Father to give you your rightful due. And then walks into the courtroom, the defense attorney, Christ himself. And Christ says... Yes, you are wrong. Yes, you have the. yes, that is actually true, but you can be forgiven and you can be saved. You can be justified because I'm going to take the punishment and the penalty for them so that they can be free. And the judge looks at Christ and says, you are condemned, looks at you and says, you are free. And when you walk out of the courtroom, you walk with unbelievable joy, recognizing that you've been set free from something that you did not deserve. And you're not gonna go back to that lifestyle because that lifestyle is what put you there in the first place. And you're gonna live in freedom, live in joy, live in rejoicing, and living in hope. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is my justification. Let us pray. Father, today we thank you for what Christ has done in our place and for our sins that today, even though we are sinners, that we're weak, that we're ungodly, that we're enemies of you, that you made away, And we thank you for that cross. And through Christ's sacrifice, gave us forgiveness and deliverance. Church, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed today, as honestly as I can, would like to ask the question, are you justified? Are you right with God? Have you laid down your accolades, your goodness, your rightness, your whateverness, thinking that you are somehow can justify yourself? Have you laid those things down and have you received The work of christ and what he has done in your place and for your sins that is the only way either you accept christ alone by faith alone and enter into glory or you hold on to your own sin and your own shame and your own accolades and your own performance and you go to hell today you can trust christ by faith believe in what he has done today could be your day of confession Today could be your day of decisions. Decision, the the quality of your life and the direction of your life will be the result of the decisions that you make. No greater earthly spiritual decision could you make than trusting Christ and what he has done uh, for you. And Father, we just receive Christ today. And for those, Lord, who are taking the step to confess and to acknowledge and receive God, um, help them today to decide and to give their life to you. Um, This we ask in Christ's name, amen.